My favorite class in high school was, is and still always will be PE. <laughs> One year in particular, there was a gal there in the same period of PE that I had, and I admit, she was, she was cute, and I liked her. So every time I had a chance to flex, I did. Helpful if you have muscles, but that wasn't my concern at that point. One of the favorite things that we got to do was play sport, uh, like uh, team team competition games. And so we were playing baseball, and I was in the outfield. Um, I kind of wasn't paying attention. I was tired. I was up. I was up all night night before because I was on the phone talking to somebody. This is days when they used to just put the phone on your ear and just lay in bed and talk to people. Um, anyway, so this dude comes up to the plate, and by the way, the girl that I was interested in was on that other team. The guy comes up to the plate, he hits the ball, and it's soaring. It takes me a second to realize it's headed right toward me. And everyone who's anyone on her team is like, oh, this is it. We just scored. We just crushed this other team. But I saw her, and I said, I need to catch this ball. And so as this ball is making its way over my head, I turn around and I book it as hard as God will allow me to do. And I ran and ran and ran to the point where I remember like, man, this is going to, this is going to be amazing when I catch this ball, right? So as the ball is soaring over my head and I hear the people behind me cheering, he's, he's making his way around the bases. And at the very last minute, as I stretch my hand out to be a hero for my team, I put my hand out and I caught it. I was stoked. <laughs> there are times in your lives that you'll never forget because they're just so amazing and so rare. That was a time that I was, I was a hero for my team. I was stoked. I looked around to see if she saw and she wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> I threw the ball down. And I got, Come on, what do I have to do here? Anyway, there are times that, that you, you have in life that are memorable because of how great they are. Even when there's a great deal of pain that comes with it. Pregnant moms in the room can say amen to that because they know that it's hard to carry a, a six-pound, eight-pound, nine-pound baby as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then when you're actually going through the moment of labor, I know this because I experienced it, apparently it's a little painful. But once you're holding that disgusting creature in your arm, which is your baby, I mean, let, let's just be real for a second. Babies are ugly, right? I mean, let's do, babies are ugly. I, even my kids, even mine, I, I said that and I was okay with that. They, they don't look good coming out. I digress. The pain that goes with having a baby, it's not that bad, but the pain that goes with having a baby, once you have the baby, all of the anticipation and all the pain and the agony that goes with that bundle of joy kind of dissipates because it's worth it. It's worth going through the pain for the result. If you want to be a Christian in this culture, Peter wrote a letter for you because you're about to go through enormous pain to be faithful to him. But what he's going to point you to is that there's a benefit, there's a result and a reward that is so much greater than the actual pain that you're about to experience. The letter that we're going to go through for the next five weeks is 1 Peter. I love this letter. And it's so appropriate for us in this particular season of time because uh, I was just talking to the seniors this weekend during the retreat about the fact that they're about to enter into a new phase of life where they're less protected. You're going to have a lot more exposure to people that don't like you, don't believe what you believe, and even, in fact, dislike you because of what you believe. I mean, we, we just talked briefly about homosexuality and even sexuality in general. That subject alone causes people to get frustrated with you because you're such a, you're an idiot for thinking what you think. 
I mean, how silly is it to hold to a book that's so old and filled with errors that you would believe that book above what we now know to be a fact? Sexuality is not something that you choose. It's something that you are. It's embedded into who you are as a person. Fundamental to your identity, they would say. And so you, as, you know, as a Christian, you have to decide for yourself what, it's gonna, what, what you're willing to pay to follow Christ. First Peter is the book for you. Because in this book, he, he's talking to a group of Christians that are in a hostile culture. It's not what, it, it's, not what it's going to be. It's going to get worse before it gets better for them. But he's talking to them and he's saying, here's what you need to know in the midst of a trying time. In suffering, in heartache, in persecution, here's the attitude that you should have if you're going to be faithful to Christ and if you're going to live a life that is good. And some of the things that he says is surprising, jaw-dropping even. But his letter really is meant to encourage and to help you. I said to the seniors this weekend, and I'll say it to you, all of you, because it's true. It's not just true for them, it's true for all of you. My concern as a pastor is that no matter what season of life you're in, no matter what school you go to, no matter who you marry or where you live, I care most about your walk with God. That you stay faithful to him and that you not give up. Some of you guys are not Christians, and I'm praying for you to become Christians, but for those of you who are, this is especially pertinent to you. If you're not Christian, this is helpful for you because it's going to give you the mindset of what you can expect as a believer in this world. So with that, please, let's open up First Peter. Let me just make a brief comment about the, the first few verses. As you open it up, let me just show you who he's talking to. It's, it's coming from the Apostle Peter. There is some debate about whether or not Peter actually wrote it, but the debate is not all that helpful, and it's usually not all that insightful. Apostle Peter has his fingerprints all over it, so to speak. And so as you read this, you're reading one of the guys who spent a lot of time with Jesus. And as a result of that, he knew what it was like to follow the shepherd and to also shepherd others. Peter himself knows that it's also like to fail miserably. Remember what Peter did when Jesus needed him most? Peter defected. Peter denied him three times because a servant girl said, hey, aren't you one of his followers? He said, no, 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 no. And so he writes, let's look at the first three verses. We're going to dive into the, the, the next set, though. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He writes to those who are elect exiles, and we're going to talk about those two words in a second, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the, the, the people that he's writing to are those in Asia Minor, uh, and he's writing specifically to the group called the elect exiles. Those are two words that are awesome. Elect are those who are elected to be saved in Christ. They're people that God has called from the foundations of the world to become followers. The exile part refers to people that are strangers. Have you ever been to another country and, to and felt totally out of place? You've gone there, they speak a different language, they, they act differently, they, they, they wear different clothing. Now, there's a lot of different uh, traditions and, and kind of cultural distinctives that make you feel like an other, an outsider. And he's saying, I'm writing to you elect exiles. Even though this might physically be their actual home that they were born and raised in, he's making a point that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be a stranger in the world around you. And increasingly so because your life will look so dramatically different from everyone else's life around you who's not following Christ. And as the, as the government continues to legalize things that we would disagree with, and as the culture continues to adopt things that you and I would say that's wrong and that's unhelpful, you're going to increasingly feel more and more like an exile. Again, he's writing this letter to you to say, I need you to pay attention to this, elect exiles, because this is massively important. I'm writing to all of you. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been with him for a long time. Here's what you need to know. And now we jump into our text here. 1 Peter, starting at chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And essentially what he's doing there, by the way, is just saying, man, God, you're awesome. May you be praised. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And that's huge. That born, oops, let me try that again. He's caused to be born again to a living hope. That's what we're doing in that song today. That's what this whole sermon's about. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Look at this text with me. It's his great mercy. Notice that it's not because of how good we are. It's not about our works. It's not about how beautiful we are. It's about his great mercy, which is to say we're not getting what we deserve. We're getting kindness instead of, instead of judgment. It's because of that mercy that he has caused us to be born again. You remember this from John chapter 3? You got uh, Nicodemus uh, talking with Jesus, and Jesus says you must be what? You must be born again. This is the only way that you can get into heaven. You must be born again. This is submission to God through repentance and faith. Jesus says his spirit will make you brand new, such that it's just like being born again. You're born again to a thing. You're born again to something. It's to a living hope. And notice that the medium or the vehicle is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Something we just spent the last weekend and even the the few days prior to that discussing, celebrating, and rejoicing in. The fact that Jesus was not staying dead. He has resurrected. He's no longer dead. He's alive. This is Peter's first focal point in this entire letter. And here, at the very least, it should remind us that there is a great deal of significance, importance, weightiness in the resurrection. That somehow, the resurrection is what's going to keep you steadfast, anchored to God in a trying and difficult time. The resurrection. It's not just about acknowledging it and understanding mentally, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. Peter wants you to see it and to savor it, to rejoice in this. This is what causes Peter to celebrate God and say, man, you're amazing. Blessed be the God and Father. You saved us. You made us born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've got to see it, though. Not simply acknowledge it. You guys ever see these photos here? Stereograms? What's in that picture? Can you guys see it? Might be kind of hard with the, over the projector. Stereograms have pictures uh, embedded into them, but you can't see them unless you have that special eye trick that people do where you can kind of, you get close to it and then you go back and I guess you can see it that way. It's kind of like crossing your eyes in some sense, but once it pops out, it's like, oh, I see it now. It's pretty amazing to be able to see a stereogram. Did anyone get it yet? No. Oh, yeah? You got it? No? No? Okay. I'll post it on our, our Insta and I'll see if you guys can figure it out. Okay, once you see it, it see, you see it. It changes everything. Even though most people can look at this and say, there's nothing there. There are some people that can look at this and say, wow, there's a whole lot there. And it's cool. And it's exciting to be able to see that. That's kind of the way the resurrection works. A lot of people see it. They, they're aware of it. They know it's there. But they don't realize that the resurrection is something magnificent, marvelous, and earth-shatteringly good news. See, the resurrection, of what Jesus did, is so significant because it does several things for us. The first thing that it does for us is give us a living hope. In today's day and age, a lot of your friends and your family members are hopeless because they're hoping in things that don't last. They're hoping in financial security. They're hoping in having the spouse who's beautiful and awesome. They're hoping in a good house, a nice you know, two kids and a dog. They're hoping in the wrong things. But what Jesus gives us is a living hope. And that word for hope is elpis. 
Not that that matters really, but it means favorable and confident expectation. That's the kind of hope that we have. It's not a dead hope. It's not shaky. It's not faltering. We have a living hope in God that is never going to change. We're not hoping in money or a perfect ACT score or more followers. We're hoping in the thing that is unshakably good. It's a foundation for us. Not only that, but the resurrection also does several other things for us. Turn to first. Corinthians chapter 15, if you're taking notes, or you can just watch on the screen what I do with this text. But the resurrection is something that Paul said is of first importance. He said that it's, uh, I deliver to you, the Corinthian church, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Pop quiz. There's a repeated phrase there in it. What is in there? What is it? Good, you're being observant. That's what a good Bible student does. Paul is basing his testimony on a massive, importantly, an important thing in the text. It's in accordance to the scripture. That what Jesus is, what Jesus has done wasn't something that no one should have, like, said, oh, where did that come from? They didn't realize that that was going to happen. Paul is saying what we have is something based on historical reality. It's not just the fact that Jesus actually rose from, rose from the dead, but that it was called before it even happened. And so what we have is not only a living hope, but we have also a grounded hope. It's a hope that's grounded in the scriptures that isn't something that we can say, well, yeah, we just Jesus kind of mysteriously in a corner rose himself from the dead, and all these people just began to share this message, this myth, this legend. It's not the case. Paul says this is based on what the scriptures have already predicted. There should be no, there should be no sense of like, oh, I didn't realize that was going to happen. The resurrection gives us a living hope and a grounded hope. Let's continue on in 1 Corinthians 15, looking at verse 5. Paul says, and not only that, but he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? That's right. Cephas is Peter. Then to the twelve, which by the way, that's whose book we're reading right now, right? And then to the twelve. Who are the twelve? The apostles, the disciples, right? So there you go. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He's giving an account of what happened here. Verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive. What do you think Paul is intending to do with this, moment, with this verse right here? When he says, most of whom are still alive, what's he encouraging his audience to do? Right. If they're still alive, I could just go up to the dude and say, hey, is, did he really, did, was that really Jesus? Was it an apparition? Was it a hologram? How do you figure this out? No, there's 500 people that saw him at once, and then most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemistic way to say, though some have died. And then verse 7, Paul throws himself in there. Then he appeared, sorry, no, actually, no, that's verse 8. Then he appeared to James. Who's James? James is Jesus' brother in the flesh. The people that would know him the most. In fact, there's two people in the New Testament that have written books that we ascribe to Jesus' actual family members. The first one being James. Who's the other? Jude. Jude. Good. Whoever that was. Jude. Now imagine this, imagine your siblings being convinced that you are God. What would you have to do to prove that to them? They know your flaws, right? They know you don't brush your teeth every night. They see that. (laughs) Hopefully you do. But they know that. And yet, two people, the closest people to him, arguably, who were at once skeptics, now become proponents of Jesus because of one central event, the resurrection So he appears to James, and then to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, that is someone who comes in later, he also appeared to me. You see, the resurrection also gives us a credible hope. It's not something done in a corner that no one could have validated. Granted, right now we're looking at a historical event. We're saying this happened in history. 
And we can't go back and test it. We can't put the resurrection in a laboratory and, and test it. But what we can do is look at historical, uh, the historical evidence and say, does this make sense given what we know to be the, the truth about history, about the resurrection, about the biblical data? The resurrection gives us a living hope, gives us a grounded hope, gives us a credible hope. Christianity would not have happened apart from these witnesses, by the way. There's this guy named Chuck Colson who was part of the Watergate scandal. He said this. By the way, so Chuck Colson uh, goes to prison, gets saved, starts a, a new thing called prison ministry fellowship, I think is what it's called. Um, and, and he becomes a Christian. Here's what he says. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it, which, by the way, is massive. Massive. They never denied it, even to the point of being tortured in their deaths. They never denied it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Which should be encouraging to you. This is why Peter's, uh, Peter's building his hope here. Because the resurrection makes all the difference. If you can see it, like you see the stereogram, if you can see it, that changes everything for you. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, what else could happen that would change that? What else could you say to someone? Okay, so here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion out there. We're saying we have a founder who died and then came back to life. Think about how absurd that sounds. But if that happened, okay, this is for ducks here, let's say I got shot in the chest right now, I fell down, and then I got back up. Took the bullet out and flicked it aside. I could probably start a successful religion. Cult anyway, because that would be a fake religion. But Jesus actually did this. And this is why Peter focuses on this as our hope. Because it's not something that's just, okay, well, anyone can claim to be Christ. But Jesus proved it by letting himself be crucified, tortured, and then raising himself from the dead and calling his shots. He called it. And then he quotes the Old Testament to say how the Old Testament predicted this. You shouldn't be surprised by it. This is what changes everything for us. The resurrection gives us a living hope, a grounded hope, a credible hope. Look at the next several verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Looking at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, you have to kind of read between the lines here, right? You're, you're having to assume that Paul is talking to Corinthians who are saying, hey, once you die, you die. That's it. No one's coming back to life. That's stupid. No one has ever seen that. That's not going to happen. That's kind of the, the, the gist that you get from Paul's language here. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Those are massive words there that should be highlighted in your Bible. If the resurrection is not true, if Jesus had not been raised, the preaching is stupid, your faith is stupid, none of this makes sense. It's empty, purposeless. He says, We're even, uh, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ had been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is futile. Again, pointless, meaningless. And get this, the worst part about it, you are still in your sins. Because if Jesus did not get raised from the dead, that means your sins had not been paid for. God did not accept it. God rejected Jesus' offering. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, 
then those who have uh, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They really have died. Nothing else is going to happen. It's over for them. Verse 19. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, and there's our word, in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Why? Well, Paul himself is a great testimony for why. Because he's, he's giving so much to follow this Messiah who promised that he would die and rise again. If that's all for naught, then man, sucks to be you, Paul. Sorry that you're going through all this pain and torture for nothing. Guys, the resurrection is central to our faith and our hope. When you get tossed into the fire, when your feet are held to the flames, when you're suffering because of who you are as a Christian, we can point to a reality that is bigger than us. We could say Christ is resurrected and Christ has conquered the grave. Christ has conquered sin and I can have certainty of that. Muhammad didn't do that. Buddha doesn't do that. Hare Krishna doesn't do that. None of the other religions do that. We have hope. We point ourselves to Christ and his resurrection, and we have a certainty and an assurance of that. If you're going to endure through pain and suffering, you have to realize that the resurrection is central to our confession. It gives us living hope, grounded hope, credible hope, and an unlimited hope. A hope that doesn't end. Paul says it's not just for this life. If we're hoping in Christ just for this life, it's over for us. But our, our hope exists and persists in and through eternity. When you're dying, when someone's holding your hand at your deathbed, this is the thing that's going to come to your mind. This is what's going to cause you to exit this life and realize, man, I can let go because God has saved me. I can be confident that there's going to be a resurrection. In fact, I just got a notification yesterday or the day before that that someone from Compass had died. They're a believer, and that really does change how you experience those deaths because you can feel a sense of assurance. They're, they're with Christ now, and that's amazing. That's far better than anything else they had in this life. Peter starts with the resurrection. When times get tough, Peter says, look at the resurrection. Let your hope be in that. We are born again not only to a living hope, but look at this, starting at verse 4. Born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that there is something special for you after this life. It's not just that you're resurrected to a new life in Christ, but that there's something even far better than what you're getting in this life. He says there is an, an eternal reward that you should anticipate. You should rejoice in the fact that you have something that is firm and steady and can never be ripped away from you. A far better inheritance than anything you would get in this life. He wants you to think about that. He says that's going to hold you down when, it, when things get tough. Thinking about your eternal reward is going to be helpful to you. To imagine it, to taste it, to feel it, to see that it's coming. Yeah, there's a lot of things we don't know about it. But he does want you to say, my future is in heaven with God. I have eternity, not temporary pleasure, not temporary pain. Eternity is what I'm looking forward to. Hopefully, in the next week or so, I'm going to go to one of my favorite places. In and out. I found out that someone that I went to senior retreat with doesn't like in and out double doubles. I don't want to put Anissa out there, but I'm very disappointed. <laughs> very disappointed in that. 
But just imagine it with me, if you will, right? The toasted golden brown buns on top of two all-beef patties that are sizzling hot with melted cheese, a ton of that special sauce with some grilled onions, some crispy pickles, chopped chilies that add that kick so that it hits your palate. It stings a little, but not so much that you're hurting. If there is hurt, it's like it hurts so good. Don't stop. The onions, the lettuce. No one really eats the lettuce. You just throw the lettuce out. But the tomatoes, the fresh tomatoes that are so savory and so watery. It's just a flavor explosion that hits your mouth. And suddenly it's like you see different colors. You hear more sounds. Your life is forever changed by the double-double. Could you imagine it? Could you taste it? Are you, are you, are you, is anyone salivating at this point? <laughs> That's what Peter wants you to do with your eternal home. To look forward to it, to long for it, so much so that you can almost feel it and taste it. That's really what the Christian life is about. It's about fostering a, an attitude and a mentality of one of your small group leaders likes to say this all the time, an eternal mindset, thinking about where you're going to go. Because in this life, as Peter said, you're an exile. You're an elect exile. It's not going to feel good. It's going to be painful. It's going to be challenging. You want to follow Christ, you're going to die to yourself. And in fact, Peter says something later on that we're going to get to. He says, in fact, suffering is always better than sin. Suffering is better than sin. He says, don't suffer because you're a sinful person. Don't suffer because you're knocked off a liquor store. Suffer because you're being righteous in an unrighteous world. That's the kind of suffering that we should expect, especially when the world around us is getting worse. He says, look at that as something that you should, you should long for. Be faithful to Christ. Because what's going to happen is that you're going to have an eternal reward that is great. He describes it this way. It's a perfect reward in verse 4. He says it's a reward that is, or an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about people that run a race for a wreath around their head, or gold medals today, or, or to be on a box of Fruit Loops, or Wheaties, I guess. <laughs> he talks about people that run for glory here and now, but he says people that are smart and wise are going to long for the kind of reward that is eternal. And uh, He says... Um, Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we exercise ourselves for an imperishable wreath, something that doesn't go away. In fact, that's what the word imperishable means. It doesn't come to an end. Have you ever heard that phrase, all good things must come to an end? It's not true in heaven. In this life, yes, the best moments of your lives are usually fleeting. There are moments that you can say, man, that was really good, but then it stopped, it ended Man, I can't wait for heaven because the best moments of our lives are not going to end. It's going to be one unceasing strain of goodness and glory and perfection without the taint of sin. That's what your reward looks like. He says it's unfading. Doesn't get le doesn't lessen in power. It doesn't uh, it doesn't start like a like a drug high or an alcohol high where it starts really good and then it gets bad. He says, this heavenly reward is so good, it starts high, it stays high, it never stops. It's unfading. And then not only that, it's undefiled. There are some highs that you can get in this life that feel great, but are terrible for you. And God hates them because they destroy you. He says that the, the kind of experience you have in heaven, though, is undefiled, it's pure, it's righteous, it's good. It's the kind of reward you should want. And then he says, unfading. Some people have battery anxiety. You have to always be plugged in because your battery's always fading. 
says, your battery doesn't fade in heaven. And their iPhones, I know that. All of them, everyone has an iPhone, they don't fade. Maybe it's not. Took a liberty there. Look to your eternal reward, your inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There's a certain sense of uh, protection there. If it's kept in heaven for you, no one on earth can steal it away. Your inheritance in the next life is certain. Not only that, but it's a protected reward in verse 5. But you'll notice that the language kind of changes in verse 5. If you're, if you're an astute Bible reader, you'll notice that he was talking about a what in verse 4. But if you look at verse 5, he transitions from a what to a, a who. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's saying the reward is perfect, and the, the salvation is perfect, the inheritance is perfect. But then he says it's not just the reward and the salvation that are being perfected, but it's also the people who are guarded by God's power. They're going to be perfectly kept by God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I went to, um, to Beverly Hills recently with my family. We're house shopping. Um, <laughs> and we drove around the town and we went, to, we went and visited that, uh, what's it called, the Greystone Mansion, I think? Oh, anyway, we visited all the places around and we were driving around the area. And one thing I noticed that they seem not to care about is that they park their really expensive vehicles outside. Like these guys have garages, right? They have a lot of garage space. And yet, so, like I saw, I don't know, Ma Maserati, I don't know. Well, they nice cars, six-figure cars just parked like on the street and hanging out. And I thought, man, if I had a car like that, I would not be parking it out in the, in the sidewalk or on the street because I want to protect it. Probably put a blanket on top of it, a car warmer or something just to protect it from the elements. But these people don't care about that. They don't protect it because it's like, well, it's all the same to me. I can just buy another one if someone steals it. We protect things that are valuable. And the most valuable thing we have is our salvation. We protect that by entrusting ourselves to God. And if you notice here, it says it's guarded through what? Faith. Not a wishy-washy, airy-fairy hope. I didn't come, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. It's a real faith, a genuine faith that trusts ourselves to God who's caring for us. He's protecting us. It's a protected reward. It's also a precious reward. Way better than the Maseratis. Way better than the Lambos. Peter said it this way in verses 6 and 7. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, so you tracking with him on that? So sometimes the, the writing of the biblical author can be a bit, there's more going on than just one sentence. So in this rejoice, let's pay attention for what the this is. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So let's just put that and brackets like that so that we know, okay, oh, I shouldn't do that right there. Um, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it, is, though, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Actually, no, I put that in the wrong place there. Yeah, let's keep it there. Okay. So he's saying you're going to go through trials, but the result is that you have a tested genuineness of your faith. And he says it's more precious than gold. And think about that. It's a precious metal. He's saying more precious than money, more precious than the house, more precious than the wife and the kids and the dog, more precious than everything in this life is your faith. The tested genuineness. And here's the scary thing about this verse here. The tested genuineness, first of all, means that you're going to have to be tested. 
There is a sense in which God expects you to suffer for his name's sake. That is a gift from him because there is a testedness that proves, man, I'm with Christ. I'm not rejecting Christ. Even though I've been tested, I'm following him no matter how much it costs me. Because get this, Peter says by the, by the, by the pen of the spirit that your, your faith is more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So refined gold is less, less precious than your faith. And then he says something very interesting here at the end. You might be tempted to read this last part here, maybe found to result in praise and glory and honor. You might say, well, okay, Jesus Christ gets praise and glory and honor. And I do think there is a sense of that. But I think given what Peter is trying to do here, I can probably make a, well, not probably, I can make a good biblical case to point that those words refer to Christ, but they also refer to you. That in the next life, there is a sense in which God is going to share with you praise. You're going to be praised for your good conduct. There's going to be glory. In fact, in in chapter 2, Peter's going to say that there's a crown of glory available to us. And honor. God is going to honor you for the life that you lived in this life. And that's all going to happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The when is later. Not in this life, the next life. But the what is praise and glory and honor. He's saying this is a precious thing that you should cherish and desire. It's so easy to be self-focused or to be, self, uh, to be uh, short-focused. I'll get it. To be focused only on the here and now. But he says you should be looking at the there and then. The tested genuineness of your faith is precious because it's going to result in a great deal of eternal rewards for you. protected reward, uh, excuse me, it's a perfect reward, protected reward, and a precious reward. Paul said this, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's causing something for us. What? Eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The Bible is replete with verses like this that tell you, young person, Christian, you're going to suffer. But this light momentary affliction, and that's funny because Paul was stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and had his back tore open several times. He's saying this light momentary affliction is creating and preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Look to the there and then, not the here and now. Look at me. Look with me at First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Let's wrap this bad boy up here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy. Glory, rather. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, salvation of your souls. Peter has a group of people in mind here that are, that are about to, they're currently suffering and they're about to suffer more. This letter was written in all likelihood before Emperor Nero takes the stand. Emperor Nero, as you know, is the guy who did the crazy stuff. He was a kid, the guy who married boys and put Christians in, on lampposts and lit them up to light up his party. He was that guy. He's not taking power yet. So this letter was probably written somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of A.D. 63 to A.D. 68. Um, and, and so what he's saying here is you're currently going through suffering, but you're going to suffer even more. But here's the things that's true about you guys. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And, and though you do not now see him, that is, he's not right here in front of you, you believe in him. I think what Peter's doing is commending their faith because he knows that's what's going to help them persevere through suffering. So let's invert this and let's say, let's prepare to persevere through suffering by imitating the, the first century believers in Asia Minor. Prepare. 
Saw a video this week where CBS uploaded it and they showed a, a clip of a plane where the captain goes on and says, brace for impact. Um, and it's a real video. It's not one of those, you know, it's not a movie. It's a real video. So some guy who apparently didn't really care all too much, he started recording it. And so, he's the, so you have this terrified flight attendant saying, brace, brace, brace. Um, please don't, what did they say? They said, uh, remain seated. Um, grab your ankles, keep your head down. Grab your ankles, keep your head down. Brace, brace, brace. Terrifying. And so, so surprisingly, everyone in the cabin was pretty calm. But imagine for a moment if that happened on your plane. Pilot gets on the over the, the overcom and says, hey, brace for impact. We're about to have a really tough landing. That would put a lot of things in, in clarity, crystal clarity for you. But at the very least, the whole idea of bracing for impact is hopefully that you survive. You're getting ready to hurt and to, be, to go through hopefully a great deal of pain in order to stay alive. Peter's telling you the same thing. You've got to brace for impact because you're about to go into suffering that's going to cause you to hurt to suffer a little bit. How do you prepare then? Look at the first century believers. Grow your love for Christ. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. I said this to the seniors this weekend. I care most that you love God most. I care most that you give your affection to him, your hope in him, your joy in him. Jesus said in John 8, 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. If if God were your father, you would love me. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If you want to prepare to suffer, young person, you've got to check your heart. Not John Christ style, like real. Grow your love for Christ. Check your heart. Do you love him? Because if you love him, you're going to be willing to hurt for him. Number, uh, letter B, if you're going to prepare, you need to grow your faith in Christ. In fact, you may not have noticed this, but I would love for you at some point, maybe after this service, to go through this text again and look for the word faith. You'll see a theme in Peter's writing here that, that he front loads his chapter, chapter one, and he doesn't do a whole lot else until he gets to the end of the book. He front loads the book with faith in Christ. This is where you're going to either excel or you're going to be hurt. Your faith in Christ. Now is the time to challenge yourself. Now is the time to grow. Now is the time to ask good questions and let your faith in Christ be deepened. The time to prepare for an earthquake is before it strikes. Last, prepare growing your joy in Christ. Peter says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter again is actually, you may not see this in the text right now, but I can, I can tell you that Peter's looking toward the future and he says, it's because your hope is in the there and then that you can have great joy in the here and now. It's that we're expecting him to come back to make things right to remove sin, to help us live the lives that we are meant to live. Young person, you're going to be thrown into the fire. If you're going to follow Christ, it's going to cost you something. What Peter wants you to know is that really this, this starts with having a living hope in a living Christ. That you're to see the significance of the resurrection as more than just, I know it mentally, but to feel it deep down in your soul. It's also to anticipate your guaranteed eternal reward, your unlosable eternal reward, unlike the stock market. You can't lose this reward. He wants you to look forward to that. He wants you to prepare to persevere through suffering because it is coming. The way that we do that is we love Christ. We have faith in Christ and we have our greatest joy in Christ. If Christ is your greatest joy, what could anyone steal from you that would take anything away? Even up to your very life. Persecution is coming. You need to be prepared to be thrown into the fire. Let's pray.